0: Well, this passage today, the main section of it deals with sexual immorality or sexual purity. And uh, obviously this is not a topic that in our culture, in our society, uh, is addressed in the same way as the Bible teaches us. So, you know, in fact, a lot of what our society teaches about sexual purity is in conflict with what the Bible teaches. But we are Bible believing Christians. We hold God's Word up as in error, I'm sorry, inerrant. It does not contain errors. And it is true back then when it was written and just as true today, especially anything to do with faith and uh, doctrine and living a Christian life. So we come to God's Word helping us to uh, live a holy life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, as we explore your word, as we teach your word, as we listen to your word, give us open ears, open hearts to accept your word and to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, what is the first question we all should ask every day? Pretty much as soon as you're consciously awake. That's a good question, but perhaps not the first one. Uh, when you eight years old. Yep, okay. There's lots of questions we ask as we start our day. You know, when I had ventured into my failed expedition to retire, I started asking myself when I woke up, what am I going to do today? There was a clear indication that uh, I had more, you know, in my tank. It's not a good thing to wake up asking yourself that question. But... Here is, I think, the number one question we all should ask ourselves each day as a Christian. Can you guess what it might be? Verse 1. How to live in order to please God. What can I do today to please you, God? Surely, is, is that not the number one question? I mean, it makes so much sense. It's so clear, so simple. And it just nails it, doesn't it? As Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus, under Jesus' lordship, that he is number one, not us, not our wife or our husband, not our kids, not anyone else. Number one, who we are concerned about and thinking about and wanting to please each day is God. That's, in a sense, the very definition of Conversion. Being converted from my ways, sinful ways, to God's ways. So this, verse 1, ask that simple question. Finally, brothers and sisters, we instruct you how to live in order to please God. It is so simple. But brilliant. You know, I just wrote down some questions that people ask these days. What makes me popular? What can I do today to be popular? That's a pretty common one. And I think it's reflected a lot in social media. You know, what do I look like? Do I look good enough today? What what makes my friends happy? That's a really big question that people ask. What gets the most likes on Facebook? Or on Twitter on X? What makes me self-fulfilled and fills my life with happiness? I mean, that's... You know, very, very popular, very, very close to it. And I think psychology, pop psychology, everyone else would say that's the number one question. You do you. But that's not the the question a Christian should be asking as the number one question which must be answered. And then I suppose looking at it from the other perspective, when I go to sleep each night... Have I pleased God today? You know, surely. So here we see some really clear instructions on how to please God. And he starts with a topic that Paul pretty much addresses in every letter that he writes. And it's not just, you know, here's a list of sins. Sorry, here's the outline, okay? This is what we'll be going through today. Sexual immorality is the first sort of major topic he deals with in how to please God and then he looks at quickly a reminder of love each other and then finally lead a quiet and productive life. That's the basic outline of this passage. So he begins with how to please God with dealing with sexual immorality or talking about it and it's a topic Paul often goes to. In fact, it's a topic very, very often mentioned in the Bible and in almost every book of the Bible, sorry, every New Testament book, deals with it, talks about it, mentions it. But here is the passage that's probably next to 1 Corinthians 7. That's that's the epitome of, if you want to know about sexual ethics, both being single, being married, whatever, go to 1 Corinthians 7, it's... It, it's it, it, outlines the whole thing very well but here is probably the next uh, most extended area of the New Testament that talks about sexual purity but it comes up in every letter because it was a real issue back in those days as it is still verse 3 says it is God's will It's God's will. So this is not just the church being old-fashioned or living in another era or not keeping up with the times. This is God's will, sexual purity. Verse 3 says, sexual immorality, and so what that means, what are we talking about here, sexual immorality? We're talking about any kind of sexual relationship outside of heterosexual marriage. In other words, marriage between a man and a woman. Any type of sexual activity that goes outside of marriage. Here is marriage between a man and a woman and sex within marriage is God-given and a gift. Whereas sex before marriage, sex while you're married with another person called adultery or fornication, sex with the same sex, homosexuality Uh, and he even you know mentions incest at times in the Bible prostitution or even bestiality okay anything like that is immoral it's not God's will the only place for sex to be expressed as a Christian is within the marriage relationship That, that makes it very simple very easy to understand Verse 4 says, we are to control our bodies in a way that is holy and honourable. Which means that our desires for sexual relations are controllable. It means that they're not all bad and evil. In fact, they're a gift from God, sexual desire. It's all part of God said, go and be fruitful and multiply to Adam and Eve. You know, like how else was the population going to increase? So sex is part of God's design, but it's to be controlled. And it means that we have the ability to control. We should do it in in a holy and honourable way. And it's within our sphere of decision-making. We have the power to control it, and we are expected to show self-control. Obviously, a Christian is even in a better boat Than the non Christian, because we have the Holy Spirit to help us control our desires. In verse 5, we are to live not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. So, those who don't know God, I guess you could say, in a sense, have an excuse because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have God's word to guide them. And I guess they're vulnerable or open to whatever society says. But we aren't in that camp anymore. Sexual relationships outside of marriage was very much the norm in Roman and Greek culture. It was OK, sex outside of marriage. Marriage was encouraged, but so was sexual immorality. Although adultery was frowned upon and looked down upon because it meant you know, stealing another person's husband or wife. So that was considered not good. But sex itself, the indulgence of sexual pleasure with other people was encouraged, particularly with the young people. But sex before marriage or fornication, homosexual sex specifically was considered okay and even in their various cultures uh, and religious cults. Like religiously it was good. And female slaves who lived in the household were household Uh, was the property of the husband and could be used for his sexual pleasure if you're a female slave. Demosthenes, a Greek statesman and orator who lived a few centuries before Jesus, said this about male sexuality that continued to prevail into New Testament times. This is the way he saw it and he, he was very influential. He said... For this is what living with a woman means, to have children by her and to introduce the sons to the members of the clan and to betroth the daughters to husbands as one's own. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of the household. And Plutarch, who was another 1st century Greek writer, so now we're talking about 1st century, the time of the New Testament, he said that a wife should not be angry if her husband sought sexual pleasure with another woman. (laughs) So that's a sort of a picture into the culture, the society that Paul and the other New Testament writers lived in. What all this means for us is that the idea of sex outside of the male-female marriage covenant is not new. It's not a new thing. You know, what the church today, you know, battles with in terms of our culture, is not a new battle. It's not like, you know, modern culture has advanced so far and we've, you know, created such new things that's going to release everybody. I know in the 60s there was a sexual, you know, sexual what do you call it, revolution, you know, all that. It was so good. And, uh, and of course, they were, in a sense, you know, reacting against, uh, uh, you know, their perhaps strict upbringing in the early part of the 20th century and 1800s, you know. But it doesn't mean they were right to react against it, but that's what they were doing. But it wasn't anything new in the history of humanity because the Greeks and the Romans also thought that way just like the 60s. I don't think they wore miniskirts back then, but they, uh, it's nothing new what's happening today. And verse 6 says, And then in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of him. What does he mean by that? Well, it seems to indicate that even within the church, there were people you know, having sex with each other outside of marriage, And Paul was saying, what you're doing there is you're damaging the other person as well. You're wronging that other person or other Christian. You're affecting their Christian life. So, you know, don't do that. What about betrothal and wedding customs in the New Testament times? I I find this interesting. There's often various ideas about what used to happen. In fact, you know, and when we see... Uh, Mary and Joseph going down to register for the census you know the the great Christmas story it, it does you know affect that story because that's what was going on there they were betrothed so what was some wedding and betrothal customs of the time here we go betrothal was what we would consider as engagement today The first stage of the betrothal was finding a suitable spouse for the bride or bridegroom. In the ancient Near East culture, this was most often initiated by the families of the bride and groom. Arranged marriages, right? Though a young man could make his preference for a wife known to his family. His parents may or may not have agreed to pursue his wishes. This is still happening in India and other cultures where... You know, arrange marriages but doesn't mean you don't have a say in it. Okay? So it was similar back then. Young men and women were pledged to each other at ages as young as 12 or 13. Pledged. The second stage of betrothal involved a sort of pre-nuptial agreement. Before witnesses, the young man and woman would enter into a formal betrothal. It was a legally binding contract which gave the man legal rights over his woman once a couple entered this stage of betrothal it could only be broken by formal divorce and we see that when uh, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit and uh, Joseph says he wanted to put her away quietly to uh, avoid public disgrace and divorce her. Why does he say divorce when they weren't quite married? Well because that's what betrothal meant the only way you could it was a legally binding contract, the only way to get out of it was a legal divorce. It was very serious. The terms husband and wife were used during this period, during the betrothal period, though the couple did not live together. Sexual relations were not permitted during the betrothal time. And if one was found to be unfaithful to the other, it was considered adultery during the betrothal. At the time of Jesus' birth, adultery was punishable by stoning. Also, if one of the young people died, the other would be considered a widow or a widower, even though they were just betrothed or engaged. But you can see the difference between modern day engagement and betrothal. Back then, in their culture, betrothal had legally binding implications. It was like a, you know, a mini marriage, I suppose, whereas today engagement has no legally binding implications. And again, as I said, you you can see this in Joseph and Mary's journey in Matthew chapter one. They were pledged to be married, it says. He wanted to divorce her quietly, and that's why he used the word divorce or the Bible used the word. An angel said, came down and told Joseph, take Mary home as your wife in the future. Because what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She's not, she hasn't committed adultery, which everyone would have thought she had, or fornication. She hasn't, or it was adultery, because they were betrothed. So you know, the angel goes to reassure Joseph, and whoever else knew that she was pregnant, it's OK. In this case, it's a miracle. And she, she hasn't done anything wrong during the betrothal period. So you can, in the future, go home and take her as your proper wife. But it also says that Joseph had no union with her until after the birth. So there we have the whole, you know, you don't, during that period, have sex. What's not mentioned is when they got married in a ceremony, but you can, you can you know, assume that they did that and were married according to their culture later on, after the birth. The wedding. The length of betrothal was generally about a year. The wedding was a special ceremony. Both bride and bridegroom wore special wedding clothes. The wedding started with a procession of the groom and his companions to the bride's home. So the bride was still living with her parents to protect her. He would come with his mates, you know, come to get his betrothed wife. The company would then escort the bride and her companions back to the groom's home. You can imagine it. It would have been beautiful. And in many cultures, this is still what happens. They have this big procession now together through the streets, you know, to the groom's home where there would be a special supper prepared. During this celebration, the parents and friends blessed the couple and the father, the bride, drew up a written marriage contract. The couple would then be escorted to a special bridal chamber. Guess what happened there? Where the marriage would be consummated. And as prescribed in the Old Testament, evidence of the bride's virginity would then be given. Marriage festivals continued for up to a week. That's what used to happen. I know that sexual immorality is can be a problem in church. <clears throat> in one church, very early on when I was the pastor, we had three married men who started to form relationships, sexual relationships with other women. They were all very strongly involved in the church, the, the, the men and the family. So it was it was a tragedy. <clears throat> you know, and it was so like it was like three in the space of a month, you know, like bang. And I had to deal with it with the deacons and one of them was so embarrassed in his wife that they left the church. Well, the other two stayed, you know, eventually repented and the wives forgave them and settled back into church life. You know, like it happens. You'd have to be naive to think this doesn't happen, but it does. And I've seen it. And what were the men's reasons or excuses? Well, all three of them said that they had, what's the word? They found their um, soulmate. What a deception that is. In other words, they'd found the one they were really supposed to be married to. A Christian's first desire is to please God. And that is the ultimate question we all must ask. Am I pleasing God in the way in which I live? So in this section we see five reasons, and I'll just say them as sentences, five reasons why we, we should live to please God in sexual purity. One, it pleases God. <laughs> Two, it distinguishes us from those who don't know God. Not everyone, but it shows that we know God. If we live that way. It wrongs the other person. If they are a believer. Fourth. It avoids God's judgment. And fifth. God calls us to a holy life in general anyway. And you know. This is part of the. Power of these verses. It's, it's not like this is just another sin like you know. I don't know. Um, all sins bad but the, the, the amount of time it comes up in church the, in, in the New Testament and the weight that's given and the, the, it says it's not just another sin it's, it's a very serious issue and it says the Lord will punish men and women for all such sins as we have already told you so Paul already told that to them he's reminding them and warned you for God did not call us to impure, but to live a holy life, to, to be impure. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. It's not just a casual thing he's saying. As I said last week about love, you know, and the affection that Paul had with the church. You know, if, if, if this was layers of, uh, you know... Um, peanut butter on a, on a bit of toast, he was lashing it on, the, the love and affection. Lash, 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 lash. It was a big, thick bit of toast with lots of love on it, right? And it's similar here in a negative way with sexual immorality. He's not just casually, he's lashing it on like it's, it's important. That's enough. The second big thing is love each other more and more. If we want to please God, that's what we've got to do. Love each other more and more. Interesting the way he says this. He's already talked a lot about love right up to here, but he says in verse 9, Now about brotherly or sisterly love, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Taught by God. What's that probably mean? Probably he's referring to Jesus. Emphasis on love being the greatest commandment. You know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God, love each other. You've been taught by Jesus, by God. And in fact, you do love. So he's he's acknowledging that, that love is really strong in the church. So in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So keep doing it. Keep loving. Keep at it. And the final emphasis here in how to live a life that pleases God is to lead a quiet life. Verses 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that you your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. When he says work with your hands, he doesn't mean that's the only form of work. I mean, that's very restrictive, isn't it? As if, you know, the only way to work is with your hands. Um, There's many different forms of work. Or, you know, even those who've retired, you know, or aren't working like that. You know, motherhood and raising kids is work. That's working with your hands, believe me, I know. We all know. There's lots of forms of work, isn't there? And, uh, and I think even working in the church, as we are so blessed to have so many people in our church who get in there and work and contribute. That's, that's work. So I think what he's really getting at here is be productive. You know, Don't be idle, don't be sitting around like I, I was, well, what am I going to do today when I was retired? You know. Get involved in something productive. Show yourself to society and is worried how outsiders will view the church if we just sit around and do nothing. And the temptation is, obviously, if we're living like that, that yeah, we then might get into you know, not minding our own business because we've got nothing else to do. But if you're productive and you're busy, you don't have time for that. In the early days of the church, people were converted to Jesus and often they were persecuted. The church didn't like, society didn't like the church and often persecuted. And we see that at the beginning where the church at Thessalonica was first started. There was persecution. So part of what Paul's getting at here, writing to these people, is. You know, it's already bad enough for you being persecuted for Christians. Don't make it worse by not being productive people. You know, don't don't give reason for people to persecute you even more. So, you know, be productive. And uh, Paul told Timothy to pray that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. See, there we go. Pray that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, he said to Timothy in another book. This is good and pleases God, our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And also when Peter addressed um, uh, wives and ladies in the church, he said if you've got a non-Christian husband, he said you, you, you can win them over by being pure and living reverent lives. And emphasising the beauty that comes from within rather than the fading beauty, um, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. So, you know, it's not just here. There's other parts of the New Testament where it is definitely taught and upheld as a very honourable and good thing to lead a quiet life. You know, don't make a big stir everywhere. Don't draw attention to yourself. Just get in and work hard at the sphere of responsibility God has placed within you. You know, that may seem oh, oh that's that's a pretty low low bar, isn't it? How easy is that, just to live a quiet life? But oh, I tell you what, some people find that hard. We may think oh, well, let's see, and I'm a bit of an introvert, and to live quiet and you know just get on with my thing in quietly, it's not that hard in one way for me because of my personality, but I know we're not all the same. And I think in today's culture, this is another you know, thing in our society that has been very prominent over the last 40 or 50 years. The, the, the good life, the, the life that you aspire to as a young person... Is to get in there and make a massive difference and change the world and you know make sure everyone knows you and have ten thousand Facebook people and like everyone and you know be an influencer and you know that's the epitome of life that uh, you know you're a big person. Am I wrong? Isn't that part of what society is sort of getting out there or the superstars or the movie? You know, all the movie stars, it's all about, you know, the Kardashians and live a quiet life. Well, all those people and all the stuff on, you know, what is it, that Big Brother Big Brother, and all those dudes, you know, do they live a quiet and peaceful life? And that's set up as the, you know, oh, you want a young person to spy to someone? Be like these guys, you know, gossiping and having sex with each other and making a splash everywhere. It's so different to a godly standard of, you know, and and it all comes back to who are you trying to please? If you, your question that you wake up with and you go to sleep is, have I pleased God today? Oh, I fed the cat today. That's about all I did. Well, if you did it to honour God, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Who are you trying to please? God. Yeah. So, you know, it's not about making a big splash. Live a quiet and gentle life. And that will actually win people over. That's the difference. That will impact people. That will make a difference in people's lives. You know, when I used to... And I've sort of backed off playing a lot of golf lately, which I'm glad. But, um, you know, I used to play golf... With these people, you know, groups of three or four, you know, every twice a week, sometimes three when I was retired. And, you know, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but I'm just letting you know that sometimes when you play golf with other people in a group of four guys walking around, sometimes some of those characters are a little bit difficult to get on with. (laughs) Some of them are unusual people. And they just love the fact that I can walk around with, for four and a half, five hours and someone's going to listen to me because some of them are lonely people. And that's okay. I'm here to listen. But some of them are big splash dudes. You know, it's all about them bragging about this and that. And, you know, they just want to get in your face. And, you know, you say, oh, well, back off, mate. I'm just here to play golf, you know. It's confronting some of them. And, you know, and some of them are... I really struggled with because I just want to play golf and enjoy it and it was hard to do that. I think you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, time and time and time again because I just focused on playing my game of golf, showing interest in the other person, encouraging them when they played a good shot, shutting my mouth when they played a bad shot. <laughs> just... Being a nice guy, a quiet, nice guy. Time and time again, I would have guys going to me, mate, when are you playing golf next time? Can I get your phone number? Can I book you in? Oh, we've got a gap in our group. How, what, what time do you like to play golf? You know, I don't know how many times people would say that to me. Just because I was just focused on that. i show interest in the other person. I'm not lovingly, oh, mate, you're love, I love you, I love you. know. I'm just, you know, oh, that's a good shot. Oh, good work, mate. Oh, what are your family up to this weekend? You know, oh, how, how, you enjoyed your holiday lately while we're walking around? You know, just normal conversation, showing an interest in them, focused on the other person, quietly going about my job. And yet that was attractive, they wanted to spend another four or five hours walking around with me. Even though I was a Christian and I didn't hide it, didn't seem to bother them. What mattered was, was I had a decent guy that they could spend time with. Why am I saying that? You know, I don't need to blow my try. All I'm saying as an example of a quiet and peaceful life is attractive. And people want to be around such people that builds a platform for the gospel. When the time's right, then you can share about Jesus. There's wisdom in God's word. In this turbulent world in which we live, the peace of God is an appealing concept. If we want to be an attractive witness for Christ, influencing non-believers to see God's glory and come to him in faith, we'll make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. We won't go around making a lot of noise, interfering in the lives of others. We won't be driven to argue and boast, but instead work hard and assume a humble, low profile, both in the church and among unbelievers. And God will use that. I'm not saying we don't hold in our heart, let's take the world for Jesus, let's take Wingham for Jesus. Let's let's do that, let's pray for that. But lead a quiet respectful, peaceful, gentle life focused on other people and you will be amazed how attractive that is to those who aren't in the church. In conclusion, pleasing God involves keeping control of our sexual desires and honouring marriage as the only God-directed way sex should be expressed. Loving each other more and more. Don't ever give up on that. And leading a quiet and productive life. What question will you be asking yourself tomorrow morning? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to live a life that pleases you. Help that to dominate our thoughts and our behaviour and our prayers. What pleases you, God? In Jesus' name. Amen.